but it's been very easy for me to to think in that way and to be kind of like terrified to ever want to use prophecy although prophecy can be really interesting when we think about like whether it's avoidable whether you can change fate whether you want to change fate or whether fate is so subjective that it almost doesn't matter what it's going to look like when it comes around Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real made-up things. I'm your host, Tyler, and today you'll be joining me in a discussion on apocalypses and prophecy. The disasters that strike our world, the cataclysms that enthrall us in fantasy and mythology, and how to use them in your own world. Today joining me is Benji and Immokinate, if you'd be so kind as to introduce yourselves. I waved at the microphone just now. I feel like an idiot. <laughs> Hi, I'm Benji. Uh, I run a YouTube channel called Tail Foundry. That's uh, fiction and figuring out what we love about it and how to use it in our own works. Hello, hello. I am a machinate, also known as Ian Arnatividad. I'm the editorial chair here at Worldbuilding Magazine. I'm a writer, editor, and a worldbuilder. Oh, I, I also work at Paizo, so that's fun. Glad to be here. Ooh, that's so cool, though. I'm glad to have both of you on today. So I guess we'll kind of just hit the ground running and talk just a little bit about the concept of disasters and cataclysm and the occasional prophecy that's around them, both in our own world for disaster predictions and in our media as, well, the prophecies that the heroes always have to live up to. What do you guys think about using these as thematic or plot devices in your works or in works in general? I think it could be real, real effective uh, mostly from a character perspective, because I really like the questions these situations bank. They they create a really compelling point of conflict. Agreed with uh, Benji, but also from a practical perspective, it's a really, uh, I don't want to say easy, but it's a very relatable form of conflict in a world, just because there's already a basis for it in the real world. You can see how any number of natural disasters affects a, a populace or an area around it. So as far as research, researching is concerned, you can just pick and choose what you kind of want and find a way to implement that that makes sense in whatever work you're trying to put it in. Yeah, it's it's got a really high level of applicability because like, it's just kind of part of being a mortal being. At some point, you have to face doom of some kind. We've got entropy coming. Uh, we've got all kinds of things playing against us we're like a, a billiard ball in the cosmos just waiting for something to strike you know so we have that mortal dread all the time so playing with that space i think is totally just gonna be effective for anyone who's ever experienced <laughs> mortality which incidentally is most people you know and i think it takes that theme of mortality um and brings it to a whole like like metascope where it applies it to the whole world because the at once we're all facing our mortality and at least or at least questioning it at the same time when we f read about these things and when the characters read about them their entire world is kind of embroiled in this concept all at once what what kind of questions do we get asked and think about at the end of it all and how can we stop it if at all 
Yeah, I really like that that idea. Like, it's one thing for one character to face a life or death scenario and to have conflict as a result of it. But when everyone's facing it simultaneously, you get this huge societal, like, it's almost like the society in danger becomes the character at the point of conflict. I do agree with that. However, I think it's also good to consider that while the society might become kind of a wider focus, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to act the same way towards it. Um, I think as as terrible as it could be, there are portions of a people that would probably, perhaps against better reason, not react to catastrophes or natural disasters. Pretty much going a continuing on as they would beforehand and the motivations as to why people act the way they act can be highlighted whenever you have something as big as a world ender or a natural disaster taking it or uh, encroaching upon a society it, it gives you a lot um it gives you a i don't want to what's the best way to put it like a just cause to dive into the mentalities and even kind of the psychology of the people that you're trying to portray in your world that's totally true. I think uh, it's very easy in these situations to reflect on a society or a culture who has gone through something like this and think of them on a macro scale and be like, how did they respond? And forget that individuals are all responding in a different way. So taking the outcome of the situation in Gestalt and being like, they either responded well or not, yeah, it might be missing the point sometimes, especially if you're thinking of a character-driven story. It's kind of that perspective people tend to take on history where, like, instead of individuals in the situation, just huge groups occupying a period together and reflecting on them as kind of just, like, cutouts in that scene. So on the subject of how people react to it, it's, I think, also wise to show what really can affect people to start these kind of ideas of apocalypse and cataclysms and what and such. And what really comes to mind are disasters and the cataclysms that they can be blown up into in media. Uh, first off, I just I have the notion of natural disasters. And, you know, you have hurricanes, earthquakes, blizzards, tornadoes, um, and some smaller minor events like lightning storms and hail. And I think these kind of form the basis a lot of times for this sort of plot device or how you'll see it be used. Like there's always a storm or great earthquakes that'll rock the world. In your own works or in your own opinion, what do you think about using real life natural disasters and events to shape how apocalypse comes about in fiction? I, I really like thinking about them thematically. So like, different types of disasters will obviously mean different things to us, you know? And for natural disasters, for instance, the dialogue often becomes our relationship with nature and kind of the ire of nature, right? And, and whether we can stand against it. So depending on the kind of natural disaster, we have different ranges of longevity and different abilities to kind of power through and fight it. In the case of something like a devastating caldera explosion that fills the sky with ash and stuff. Not really too much technologically we can do about that, except for trying to protect ourselves, get to stable ground, get out of the area, whatever. And the same kind of ends up being true about tornadoes and things like that. 
but then you end up with with natural events like like deep freezes and stuff like that that we can kind of plan for and respond to. So I, I really like the thematic dialogue between how we survive on the planet and how the planet reacts to us, right? And you can kind of get into the Studio Ghibli, like man of, uh, against nature, um, the spiritual battle between them. But um, in, in the broad scope, I just, like, I just like looking at our place on the world and whether we are kind of as, as in control as we like to think we are. Yeah, I, I really like that comment that <laughs> as much as we might change the world around us, it, it only takes one one bad, one really a powerful form of a natural disaster to remind us that we are still humans and subject to nature and the most horrible aspects of it. However, uh, as you were, as Benji was speaking, he, he made a point of the kind of gradual changes that nature causes. And I think that's a, that's a contrast to what I was about to say, is that natural disasters could be like hammers in world building. You can use it to literally smash whatever you had on, on paper and just either change it or rebuild it, reconstruct it, or leave it as it is. Uh, what happens when a society is hit by something terrible that only really works for uh, matters that are more sudden that they can't react necessarily in that moment. In my case, I'm trying to think of a good example where a in a, in a fictional work where something like an earthquake or a blizzard or a hurricane really changed the the uh, scope or rather the focus of the world. Aside from something like Warcraft with with a uh, what's that called? The cataclysm. the cataclysm. I feel like that's a really obvious one uh, for video gamers. But essentially, it causes you to reconsider how everything works when all these resources, all these people, things that they might have previously had access to prior to such an occurrence, how they would react and how you're going to essentially make them react and build them up from that. So that's why I call it a hammer, is that you're in, in many cases, unless they are some sort of high technology, high magic society that can shield themselves from the worst, the brunt of those disasters, it's not going to be the same from there on. Yeah, that's a really salient point. And kind of like <laughs> the thought I had while you were talking was like, for the people living in that world, it's also kind of a, a devastating thing to think like some world builder is just smashing the heck out of you to make you different because it would be more fun. Like. <laughs> But um, in terms of like a, a kind of rapid change or, or what happens to society afterward and thinking about it, um, I think that's probably one of the funnest things about apocalypses for me, relatively speaking. Like there's a few different time frames you can occupy relative to any event. And one of them is long, long after it occurs. And um, it's, it's also hard for me to think of any really good examples of this, but tons of tons of fantasy actually occurs in kind of a long distant future after an apocalypse, like Adventure Time, for instance. I think that was a nuclear disaster, but I think some of the same issues still apply where like the world has fundamentally changed in such a way that we now have like candy people and magic and things like that. And um, the other example I can think of feels kind of silly to me because like, I, I don't know, I, I wasn't super hot on the movie, but 
there's a lot of cool things in it. Snowpiercer. Where, oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> That's great. You brought it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I was wondering whether I ethically could bring myself to, but I did. Um, so it's it's interesting because that movie at the beginning has this huge implication. The world is frozen over because of something we created, um, but still, nonetheless, nature has changed and we've had to adapt. It just so happens in that movie, the way they adapted was by building a big train and living in it forever. But still, it's fun to think about what you could do to survive a situation like that or how humanity just kind of holds on and what the world looks like as they do. That's honestly, that was a great point. You just got me thinking of kind of the stages of the aftermath for natural disasters and what it means for world building. Because we often see the post-apocalyptic, like the immediate or near immediate, is that people are scrambling to uh, recover from this thing they just experienced. And then you give it like maybe a generation or two. And that's like, I think a generation or two, if not several generations, to show this entire world that's a semblance of their previous society, but it's utterly changed because... What was, pre- what was previously available is no longer available, and ideologies have shifted to usually follow a uh, survival of the fittest uh, route if it was a particularly bad disaster. And then you get to like distant future, like you mentioned from disasters that happens a lot in fantasy, where it's very much like similar societies, just nuances as people essentially found the same tools, not exactly the, sa- the exact same tools, but rather the means required to rebuild society perhaps with changes to them like magic or or uh what's that called hidden technologies or some great development like that and in that regard too i started thinking of futurama where technically mm. there was a weird apocalypse between fry <laughs> getting frozen and then waking up but then it's like it's almost like the same but now there's aliens yeah yeah <laughs> and uh the suicide booths and stuff yeah some some paradigms shift as as things change as well and that's a that's a really interesting point i i do this is not something i've thought about at length either but it's just coming up now i do really like the idea that a lot of fantasy settings that kind of come after an established civilization that has ended so like lies of lock Lamora, you have the elder glass and the elders um even uh what's it called um altered carbon you have the elder race or whatever they're called um this is like this happens all the time and the interesting thing is the current society does not care about that apocalypse that apocalypse is way in the past but it's left remnants and that's kind of parallel to what we have in reality now like now you go to pompeii and we're here where we are where we live we're not concerned about that exact catastrophe but we can go back and like study it and and be influenced by it so kind of thinking about like way far in the future not just how will society continue and change but what will be left after this for the future do you think that's more of like a reflection of the people of the future and how they regard the past or is it more like something that's done because it's a great tool for let's say establishing a history or establishing mystery, something that can be hearkened on, let's say, in a work, like something that can hint at an eventual conflict in the story, if there is one in, in the narrative or, or in the narrative for the world. Uh, I, I think there's probably a lot of reasons to want to include something like that, but often, often it feels like it 
it kind of has this reductive quality on the present where it's like, you know, once there was this great civilization, now we're just kind of normal, boring people. But back then, they had this thing, and if only we could recover it, how much different would life be? So it's kind of like this appeal of a bygone or, or a lost boon of some kind. You know, that, that's often what it feels like to me, but definitely not in every case. You know, I think it's, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, nostalgia for ancient days, mm. but, you know, in the, in, in modern times, a lot of people write about this nostalgia of looking back at the greatness of, of age. Um, Tolkien wrote a lot about how times were great back then, and they only have continued to diminish into the present. And I think with that, people took that notion and had these great empires in the past, and then something fantastical happened. Game of Thrones even has the Doom of Illyria, which blows up the dragon-riding magical empire. And the world spirals back into the medieval era, essentially, without dragons and magic and mysticism. And you see this, like you said, like a lot, like you, like in movies and TV, like uh, Snowpiercer and Altered Carbon. You even see it going back to the 80s and 70s in D&D settings like Dragonlance, which had the Cataclysm. Uh, and Warcraft, which had the Cataclysm. <laughs> Lots of Cataclysms in our fantasy. I wonder if that reflects something. And I think it's the the fancy word mixed with the the concept of destroying the old in some grand gesture, because if it's so fantastical and great, how can it be brought low by anything except the fantastical and great? And I think that's a key part to the apocalypse prophecy piece, where if you're going to end, it has to be as spectacular as it is. Um, otherwise, it feels cheap. Yeah. Right. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that it has to match the... Kind of on, on the scale of things. For example, you don't want an ancient great civilization to just go out with a whisper in. And this might sound shallow, it doesn't make for a good story. It doesn't really make for a narrative that really compels. I despite it being a true thing, I think the Roman the fall of Rome, for example, was wasn't really a big thing. It was a very sickly, kind of sad thing to watch as they just they just broke apart from the inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but if even taking that example, if you look at it, when you talk about the fall of Rome, you always talk about Al Alric and Attila the Hun and all these great figures who all kind of died 25 years before the Western Roman Empire actually fell. So you do still have this fantastical, though this is really the cause. Oh, it just, it, don't ignore the fact that it happened almost 30 years later. It, it, whatever. Yeah, I, I think I think I agree with you. Um, I think I agree about the idea of kind of wanting it to be spectacular, but it also depends on the story you're telling, of course, like literally everything. Like if, if you want to tell a story like War of the Worlds, right, where there's like, uh, they're invaders, right? but for them on the planet, it's, it's an event that eradicates all of them there, and it's just a germ undermining them. Kind of this idea of a huge, great thing falling for a really stupid reason is... Well, it does seem to undermine the huge, great thing. It's like a, the the mouse against the elephant, and it, it almost seems like like demonstrative of the fragility of things. So, if that's not what you want, if in your story you want the huge, great society to feel huge and great, and that it took some tremendous thing to wipe them out, then yeah, probably don't make them go away because 
some some kid got sick and it spread a lot or and no one heard about it or or because they had an ec- economic collapse and and went their separate ways or something like that so i, I think talking about this though with these grand events and having to make them almost narratively sound there are you know like you you have these concepts in mythology and in our real world that are like these world ending things like ice ages and mass desertification where the world bakes and there's two there's desert everywhere or a, a meteor impact for instance and that those are the you'll see tons of movies about those usually B movies, sci fi <laughs> movies, but you'll see them also in backgrounds of movies like Snowpiercer, where there is an ice age. And then you have magical, mythical ones like the Aztec, how every time the world changes, there's some apocalypse that ends the previous world. Um, the sun bakes it, jaguars come and eat everyone, that sort of thing. Horrible uh, rag- plague of locust <laughs> or something, something bizarre. Then you have Ragnarok, the Götterdamurungr, the Twilight of the Gods from Norse Germanic mythology, where the gods all get together, fight, and one of them blows up the sun, another one blows up the land, and they just fight to the death and restart the world afterwards. And then you have something on the exact opposite end of it, which most people are more familiar with Abrahamic version, but my personal favorite is the Zoroastrian Frasho um, Koreti. Mm-hmm which is the reconciliation or the reconditioning, um, which is basically this concept where finally good triumphs over evil and the final battle has come and good wins and the world gets to be paradise. And you have all these different apocalypses that manage together into what I say is like the end all of every mythology where, where does the world end? And just about every mythology save, save Greek, I would say kind of ends with an apocalypse. Interesting. Cause I learned this today when I was kind of like looking at some notes on this and stuff. Apparently apocalypse means like something to the effect of like uh, to reveal or like something being revealed, which makes a lot of sense with like the book of revelation from the Bible and stuff yeah. and like makes apocalypse and prophecy a really apt pairing of topics. And um, I, I think this does happen a lot where like, I, I've not really thought about the role it plays in religions and why it crops up so often, but it's kind of like an acknowledgement of evanescence, like that things are going to go away at some point. And it, it almost feels like this is something that crops up so often because part of the human condition is to face that reality. So if we kind of have it lampshaded in the dogma that we're a part of, maybe it's easier to to stomach maybe it's like factored accounted for we have celestial beings looking out for this exact trajectory it's all kind of mapped out already okay on that note though this this really just kind of tinfoil hat moment did me maybe the lack of that evanescence in hellenism is why Stoicism and um, before that Greek logic really took such a prevalent role because that is the more human side of that evanescent look at the non-permanence of society and such. And maybe that's why it took off is because their religion didn't have that. Mm, That's a really interesting thought. First time I've ever confronted this uh, like confluence of ideas, but... Right. They didn't have 
uh, apocalypse per se, but they technically did have an end for people in. Sorry, am I getting this right? They technically had the underworld for Hellenistic cultures, right? Because they were still following the yes, Greek yes, pantheon. That, that the, yeah. That, that was the end of life, but that wasn't the end of all life. That wasn't the end of the world as we knew it, where it the gods died or they had to remake it. Because technically, they had two of those to start human life. They had the Tatanamaki and the Gigantamaki, where Zeus and his boys, his bros and gals, beat the crap out of the his father and the previous lords of the world, the Titans, and then out of their step siblings, the giants. And they ended the world twice and remade it and kind of took over that way. So they started it, but they never ended that way going, Oh, there's going to be humans versus the gods. It's never really a thought. It's just thought that you're going to be pious to them. It, it kind of sounds like it, this is the inverse of what we often seen. Where, where like at some point there's going to be an apocalypse and then a reckoning of some kind. Uh, very often, or at least in Judeo-Christian religions, it, it seems like um, the the reason a, an apocalypse has to occur is so that we can have our big batch final like verdict passed on us as a people. And then we have the rapture, whatever. And this seems like it's after that. Like, all things have already been accounted for. Now there's a system in place. Every individual has their own reckoning. But we're not going to batch you all together as a species anymore. That doesn't need to be done. We have it all figured out for this. Whoa. <laughs> That's all I can say to that. Yeah. It, it actually... Huh. Because I'm just... Yeah, because I'm thinking like, do you get your end if you were in a Hellenist culture? Because you get put in the under in the afterlife in the underworld. But does it really matter to you at that point what happens to the rest? And does it really matter to anyone else? Because technically, you've gotten your end. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. Um, definitely, definitely smacks of stoicism. But um, from a world building perspective, I feel like if we see this. Uh, like I, I feel like I've never encountered this in fiction where it's clear that this was part of the authorial intent behind it. Like we see God's battle and things like that and the results of their battle, like people get to exist and stuff. But I almost, I just feel like I've never seen it encountered and acknowledged that the new existence is, is a planned system, is a system that resulted from years of celestial or, or like, um, a, a grand celestial struggle of some kind, and now this is the final established way things are going to be. There's always this like tenuous balance. Like at some point, things are gonna go away. So I just I feel like I, I very rarely see that that thought in fictional worlds where where like things are gonna be like this forever. You know. Man, I don't know how many people want to read about philosophers debating all this. It's just <laughs> me, though. Uh, but no, that's a good point. Uh, any When you input something like a, the prospect of an end into kind of the societal knowledge, into their into their culture, there has to be a reason or a stem for it. Because it, it's a reflection of their ideology. Like They either believe that there's going to be this sort of end, or it's not something that's really a part of their, like a, what's that called? To general mindset, it's not either it's a concern or it isn't. I guess in that sense, that's where stuff like gods, uh, if they exist or they don't exist or the idea of them exists, would come into play. Is the 
serving as kind of the answers to what happens when it ends for human life and what it ends for if there is an end for uh, for the world in general. Yeah, well, so this this is a really like a, a categorical perspective, I think, on supernatural uh, apocalypse. Like, like what's the purpose of the apocalypse, and what does the presence of an apocalypse do to the societies or the worlds to which it's applied? But something else I'm really interested in about these kind of like supernatural, magical um, catastrophes or, or cataclysms is that they're fundamentally very different for people to respond to psychologically, where like sometimes, you know, or often if there's a deep freeze or a tornado comes and, and wrecks everything, or there's a massive um, hurricane, something like that, it, we can see it as man versus nature and our place in the world. But if it's supernatural, there's something a lot more scary about that. There's something a lot more like if it's, if it's a bunch of animals actively killing humans in a, in like a, a coup, right? Yeah, you can see the, the nature acting, but there's like intent behind it. There's something we don't understand going on where with a massive cyclone or whatever, we can go, well, that's just nature. That's just the way things are. We can explain that through science. It doesn't mean we can handle it, but at least we can explain it. But if it's supernatural, it's so much... I don't know, it's so much uh, more of a strain on the psyche to accept, I guess. I, I kind of agree. I think it's more like man versus super nature, um, where it can <laughs> yeah. be like that. But you kind of mentioned it. It's more like the unknown versus the known. Because I do think that if you were in a, if you were a person that lived in a world where you know gods exist, they have, there's tales, like gods exist. They have affected the world. They created the world. They have domains, etc. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, for example. And suddenly there's a catastrophe that was caused by one of those evil gods. It's not really... You'd still be freaked out. But it's not like, oh, well, I knew that was going to happen. So I think in this case, it's more like uh, the unknown catastrophe or the unknown end versus the known end that really gets people. Because even now, it's like, oh, well... We know how hurricanes work, um, and that was just going to happen. It's still nature, but at least we know how they work. So it's kind of that that veil of knowledge, that the thing that separates kind of uh, us knowing how to react, us expecting it, versus just hitting us like unexpectedly <laughs> and utterly destroying everything. That would probably really alter how people view and also how they respond to it. If that makes sense. Yeah, and like. On the flip side, an event like that could actually make God-fearing people. You know what I mean? Like, if if something like a hurricane came around, we would be able to attribute it to a source. But if suddenly, I don't know, people started, like, melting spontaneously in, into, like, just puddles of liquid, and we couldn't explain it scientifically, we'd be like, there is some strange shit going on behind the scenes here. Did we, like, incur the wrath of some malevolent force or something like that and so the wondering would be part of like would be part of the anguish that we go through as a result of this apocalyptic event and i think more than just being scared of the unknown it's also this like cosmic horror nihilism where if there's a force we understand we can psychologically confront it if there's a force we don't understand 
there's no reason for it. There's no reason for us to be dying. It, it, it just, it's happening. And that, that's not a, it's not a very positive outlook, but like, if you're writing horror, if you want to write something absolutely impossible to, to make an optimistic viewpoint about, like, I think a good example of this is Junji Ito. He writes these stories that are totally inexplicable where like people's faces descend from the sky in the form of balloons and come and find them and strangle them. And this happens to everyone. And like, there's nothing to attach to that. It's just happening. That's terrifying. Oh my gosh. Ugh. An untethered horror where you, you almost simultaneously know what's going to happen and hope it isn't. And you know, I think there's a couple HP Lovecraft stories that really tie into that, but Junji Ito is the master <laughs> of this. The um the holes one, the 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 fault, Amagama fault, where there's just holes and one's perfect for everyone, and you and it calls to you and you have to go through your hole. It's just terrifying because you're like, oh my god, he's gonna find his hole and he's going to go through it. Yeah. And then there's Uzumaki, which is just oh. I think um Ragnar from the channel Ragnaroks. He's made a few really good videos about Junji Ito, and he calls this in one of his videos the horror of compulsion, where it's like when you're compelled to do something you don't understand, it's a feeling from within you. The only thing you can do to fight it is use your willpower. But apart from that, it's not like somebody forcing you into a situation. Your own body and mind are rebelling against your sense to make you do this terrible thing. And this this is not necessarily directly related to apocalypse, but different kinds of fate, different kinds of demise that people can face. And then when you expand it out to a grand scale, instead of just being like a one-off weird situation, it turns into something we have to attach our existence to. Something we say, well, there's a force, not just an event, there's a force that we can succumb to that we don't get at all. So this, this totally brings up a tangent in me that makes perfect relevant sense because it is simultaneously an apocalypse because it's going to affect everyone. And it's this compulsion horror. Um, so there's this recent anime called Plunderer and opinions of it aside, there is this mechanic in the world where everyone has a number and the number goes up when you fulfill a specific compulsion. Um, people have to compliment your food. You have to do it. You have to get thanked for helping someone altruistically, that sort of thing. And everyone has their specific compulsion to them. How many miles have you walked in your life? And it goes down when you fight your compulsion. And when the number goes all the way to zero, hands come out of the ground and pull you into hell. What? That's awful. So, like, yeah, if, if you have willpower, you're damned. Oh gosh, yes. that's so depressing and also terrifying. My gosh, what if you had an awful compulsion? Like you had to be terrible to. Oh no, oh that's sick. What that, about that's... drug addicts? Yeah. So there's, there's, they actually kind of lampshade this when they talk about how the people who are the most powerful in the world have the easiest compulsions to to fulfill. Like one guy, it's literally just sticking to his convictions. So it can be as easy as just not lying or telling someone no. And his number's like incredibly high versus someone whose number is like incredibly hard to fulfill. Like every 10 kilometers I walk, my number goes up one. Ugh. That's, yeah, that's awesome. That's a really cool premise. And um, while it's not like an event, it is definitely a fate. It's more like systematic 
as opposed to like mm. hit society hitting a wall and having to respond. But I think I think the only difference is the timing. Like if if everyone were destined to face this thing at the same time, or if it were a new faint for them, then suddenly, like I was saying before, like we have to reconcile this newly with our existence. It's like what apocalypse means, the revelation of something, right? It's it's the Logan's Run conundrum, where it's not something we all face at once, it's we all face it in our own time. And I think that's where it becomes a little bit more um, horrifying. For anyone who doesn't know, Logan's Run is a 1976 film, uh, science fiction based around this society where when you turn 30, you're essentially sent to the farm, you're executed. So that way there's no overpopulation. And it's how do you live in a society like that? How do you face this problem? And in Logan's Run, their solution is to hide it. They, uh, don't they? They make it like a, a wonderful ceremony, like you're ascending or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but but what's actually happening is they're just incinerating you. And then they, you have um, the same thing in the movie The Island, which is fantastic, where people live in this resort that has survived the end of the world, and you know, when you win the lottery, you get to go to the even better resort. And what's actually happening is that everyone who lives there are clones, illegal clones. And when you win the lottery, it's because you've been grown to give someone organs. You're an organ donor for yourself and you get harvested. Ew, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, that, that reminds me a lot. There's an anime called, I think, uh, the the forbidden neverland i think it's promised called. neverland yes, that's the promised one neverland. yes that's the one. yes yeah and no no spoilers but watch it if you want to feel this kind of dynamic if you want to feel this constructed fate that's misrepresented to people um but but this is an interesting thing to segue into i think um systematic fate versus like an apocalyptic event where like you were saying people will face their own fate in their own time. And that can be really interesting on a systematic level. How do we continue to live with this thing? But then in terms of the apocalypse, the revelation that this thing is happening or, or having to confront it for the first time is, is like a different dynamic because it's that tension we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast where it puts you into a state of conflict. It's not necessarily your state of existence, where to suffer or to, to live is suffering, to live is to deal with the fact that fighting your compulsion will eventually have you dragged down into hell. It's learning to accept the fact that you're going to die eventually for the first time. That's kind of the space this puts you in. And um, that dread is, is like, I don't know, it feels like a very unique thing to have to confront something like that for the first time, right? And, and doing that on a massive level just imagine the hysteria, the, the concept of death. It's almost like in the movie, um, The Invention of Lying, right? Where like a guy discovers that oh, he can lie. Imagine oh. if one person discovered for the first time that they can die and that notion got propagated. That's like a different kind of apocalypse unto itself, where it's not like an event descends upon everyone, but an awareness develops among people. And we have a psychological apocalyptic event where people rapidly become nihilistic or something like that. I mean, going even beyond just a psychological, um, that's still, I, I feel as though those are extremely good points. I still, I do think applies to external 
apocalypse or external disaster, external causes for that end. Um, I think that if in a world, if a meteor was going to smash into a world, then people would probably break out into hysteria because it's something that was never, perhaps he never had an idea of it, but it's going to occur regardless. It's unstoppable. And that probably brings out a lot of, um, I want to say the worst in people, but simultaneously, I think that's all dependent on the society they've lived in. The types of, um, for example, the the emotional, psychological supports, like the pillars within that society that exist. Because I, I think of, uh, in, to hop back a bit to real-life religion, I think it was Calvinism or some form of Christianity, where they had the concept of the elect. Uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But essentially, from the moment you're born, you will either go to heaven or hell. Doesn't matter what you do in Oof. life. Doesn't matter. Predetermined. Yeah, predetermination. Doesn't matter whether you were good in life. Doesn't matter whether you're bad. But 50-50 shot, you're going to go to heaven or hell. So having that knowledge is like, it's all a reflection, I guess, on how people make do of it. Because that, that kind of gives people a massive, uh, f- almost like a ticket to do whatever they want. Alternatively, they might want to uh, not do bad things because of the hope that it could change their fate and all that. So really, it's just uh, kind of a societal reaction rather than necessarily just the uh, idea of psychology itself or psychology specific to to an event. Yeah. I think oh, go sim- ahead. I, I th- oh, sorry. Yeah, I think simultaneously you can even bring it in with the with actual with how the, uh, the Calvinist ran things. It was it's not just that, you know, there's nothing holding back because of this predeterminism. It's, I think, the exact opposite, where now nothing matters. You know, they they didn't want anything fun or interesting in their life because it didn't matter how they experienced or saw life. There was no dancing, singing, cards, playing games, that sort of thing. It was just work and prayer because that those are the only two things that mattered to God. And maybe that'll leave your place in hell. And if you're going to go to heaven, then no earthly delights matter because when you go to heaven, nothing can compare. Interesting. And this is this on the point of um, predestination? Like, mm-hmm. so, but if you're in the situation where like you're going to go to hell, like you're slated out for it, then that kind of it, it puts you in a weird mental state, a really nihilistic state where you're like, well, if this is all I'm going to get, then I might as well just do whatever I want or whatever feels the best for me here. I've got, you know, nothing um, metaphysical banking on my actions here now. So it's almost like if you learned that, if you were able to somehow figure out which one you were, then you could abandon your religion altogether if you wanted to. And then that in itself is kind of, it's kind of like, self-defeating because if you abandon your religion the thing that told you that you were fated for hell and that enables you to do things you wouldn't otherwise have done then you're in this weird like catch-22 situation where it's like well okay so do i believe this thing or not but that's that's neither here nor there i think the interesting thing about this discussion is the reactivity of the individual given the knowledge that they have about their situation and um I'm kind of thinking about this in terms of like a flowchart. Like, if there's a fate coming for you, if you have an impending doom, either on a personal level or a societal level, you think like, 
can it be overcome? Um, if yes, will we? Will I overcome it? If yes, how? And then on the other hand, it eventually gets down to how do I accept my fate? Like, can it be overcome? No. Is it hopeless? Uh, yes. How do I overcome my, or how do I accept that this is just the reality that I have? And um, I think those are kind of the two big sides of the coin that we have in this discussion about impending doom in general. Do we have to accept it, and how do we? Or do we not have to accept it, and what are we going to do about it? And um, right now, my mind is kind of going into the, like, how do we accept a clear impending doom? When the prophecy is laid out, and there's nothing to respond to, or the meteor is coming, and we don't have the technology, what do we do? And I think that's a good premise for a, for a dark story of people fighting their fate. I think that's probably uh, that comes up a lot in <laughs> going to go back to tabletop gaming, where usually there is some impending doom that, if unanswered, will destroy everything. However, because it is a game, it's usually the answer is yes, it can be stopped. However, usually at great cost to maybe a few or many. So it's kind of that conflict that these apocalypses can bring into a narrative, into world building, that's just such a great source for informing even the smallest bits of a society or culture. Because it, it all kind of connects back to it. It has to be considered, otherwise something about your apocalypse or something about your world building will probably seem off, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the kind of experience you're intending for your work to be. Like, like you said, thinking about the more nihilistic perspective, learning to accept your fate, that would be more appropriate for a really pithy, I don't know, a story that's examining your feelings about a situation personally, a very literary story that wants you to question your philosophy. Whereas in like a tabletop RPG, if what you want is for people to have like fun or to be able to engage with it, um, aside from just on a philosophical personal level, saying that there's nothing to do means like, so we're not doing anything active. It kind of defeats the purpose of a game wherein problem solving is like the order of the day. So I think a really important aspect of an apocalypse in a lot of stories or an apocalypse in an external conflict where there's actually something to do about it is will we overcome it and if the answer is yes how and at what cost and that's a really interesting i think that's the source of a lot of the stories that we see about apocalypse in general what do we have to give up in order to overcome it and what's it going to look like yeah as a as a dm I, I really do like the the concept of putting prophecy in game. Players always love reading about it and figuring out what it's going to mean, in my experience at least. And the one way I always try to get around the idea of you have to do it this way is make the, the prophecies not just obscured, but I've always kind of world built in this thing where prophecy isn't what you expect it to be because through its ambivalence and ambiguity, just so long as you fulfill the conditions, it could be a whole number of things it could be just the way that an event is precipitated and using this prophecy they can accomplish a whole number of goals instead of just the one you expect and so it allows players to 
kind of go at it from a bunch of different angles that they come to the conclusion of, and it allows them to have control over what the prophecy really means through their expectations. Yeah, I, I like that point a lot about uh, prophecy being ambiguous. What I was thinking as you were talking was, um, at what point does a prophecy stop being a prophecy and start just being an instruction manual? Because if there are tons of particular details and instructions that people have to follow to bring it to fruition or to prevent it, at some point, there's no interpretive value left in the prophecy. And it's not really like, I, I get this feeling that in order for something to be a prophecy and not just a forecast, not just like a clear, you know, telling of what's going to happen, it has to be a little bit ambiguous. There has to be room to be able to interpret it. So that that's an interesting um, point about or a prophecy that I've just never thought about that, that 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 has to be baked in and I kind of wonder like the more specific you make it th does that mean like you're taking interpretive value away from it and I wonder if like if there's some rule here if there's some scale between an instruction manual and a prophecy and as a creator you can like think about where your the systems you're creating fall on it like how much room you're leaving to the players or the the readers to interpret i think a lot of a lot of that kind of idea of having an instruction manual or rules cake baked in is what is your grasp on symbology especially the symbols in your world and what kind of story you're trying to tell because i i've used symbols to mean different things um and over the course of several games my players have been attempting to figure out one prophecy in particular and throughout each game they keep on finding different ways to talk about each point in it uh the prophecy is when when the black wolf lies in blood and the old bear is broken the keeper of bells shall be slain by the blade of worms and every time they come through to a new game and they don't complete the prophecy they keep on running into it and trying to figure out how to complete it and what's going on with it and they keep on facing it hmm that's fun though that it's it's fun because like you as a dm can kind of hold that ransom forever if you want to um and you can just like ring the bell and they could totally not be aware that they'd done it um you don't even have to announce it it's just at some point it becomes clear oh no like we happened to get the right combination this time you know through a series of misfortunate events we completed this but not to our knowledge yeah this discussion is making me yeah uh, is making me reconsider my feelings on prophecy now. Cause the moment you said forecast, I'm like, huh. Railroading in GMing, some would say. But uh I think a prophecy as long as the intention is that it will eventually happen, it is a prophecy regardless of how specific or obscure it is. I think as a narrative tool, it works better when it's a bit more obscure. Because one, it leaves the mystery, something to solve, something to work towards. Um, however, I think it can also work really well as a specific instruction, as a prophecy, because that gives way to the uh, fighting against fate plot. The question is, is prophecy as absolute as it is? And whether the answer is yes or no, that it can, uh, that can lead to a great story. As far as using it for a game, that's where... That's where I, I want to say I'm doing it well, but I, I'm not going to say I am because there technically is a prophecy in my setting too, where it's like, 
oh, the end is nigh because of an ancient sin that yeah, the mortals have killed a god, etc. And now they are cursed. And until they are ended, it's going to be like that. And that's how it is. Um, but the players who live in said world don't want that to happen. But it is certainly a telling or a prophecy. Really, it was really just pondering that. It's it's really this. It's a fine line because I would never say that I use prophecy as a main plot driver. Um, just because I like my players having absolute freedom and choice. And this is why this one prophecy has been in four, three, four games now is because I don't push them to go towards it. And I think if I did, it would have been solved quite early on. But I, I always love the fact that the world moves on and the world does its own thing despite what the players do. And I always try to live through that, that the world is a world and it is alive and the player, and it's not just waiting for the players to show up to do things. Mm -hmm. And through prophecy, I, I like to show that, that, you know what, sometimes you don't have control over what's happening. They found out about this hero quest, which is kind of like a prophecy, but it's specific events that have to happen for an outcome. So it's a lot like a prophecy, but um, kind of like a story, but with keynote players that are predetermined. This, um, is, this is kind of changing my outlook on prophecy a little bit because I don't know, whenever I run into the, like the chosen one trope or um, just general prophecy, maybe it's my history of playing games and the way it's used in games to outline goals for the player to fulfill, to make a thing happen. But I've always felt like a certain level of narrative cheapness where the prophecy is really a plot outline. And I think that that obviously doesn't need to be the case, but it's been very easy for me to to think in that way and to be kind of like terrified to ever want to use prophecy. Although prophecy can be really interesting when we think about like whether it's avoidable, whether you can change fate, whether you want to change fate, or whether fate is so subjective that it almost doesn't matter what it's going to look like when it comes around. So... Yeah, I don't know. These are these are some really good ideas, but but mostly I just like the modularity of a prophecy or or making sure that a prophecy is modular. If there's tons of different ways to interpret it and fulfill it, then yeah, it totally doesn't have to be just a pre-written plot or an instruction manual at all. And the only reason I'm talking through all this stuff is because it's a little bit of a revelation for me as a writer, maybe going forward in the future, I won't be quite so skeptical about predestined paths. The way you're saying, and also the way Tyler mentioned earlier, prophecy can be an interesting world-building tool to explain the unexplainable, um, especially when you have gods or magic. Why did it happen? Because, well, you know the prophecy, so something about the fate, something about a power beyond, something out there has caused this to come into being. It could even be something that's explainable. But just the happenstance of it makes it all kind of align in a way. And that's a way to kind of keep it narratively, perhaps narratively um, relevant to whoever has been aware of the prophecy. Yeah, that, that's kind of an interesting point. You can kind of lampshade things by, by prophesying them. Like if you have the foresight for it, and I don't know if this is actually like what you meant or what you were saying, but like, the, the place my brain went was that if you have some crazy, magical, apocalyptic event that's going to occur, if all the animals are going to turn on humans simultaneously and eat them, that's a little less 
psychologically taxing in that like we don't get it if some religion has been like oh for years we knew that there was going to be a, a reckoning of nature or something like that something so broad that you can totally apply it to the situation and it explains it a little bit and i think you guys mentioned this earlier i think it was both of you actually separately saying that like part of what religion and deities and some dogma about the supernatural does for us is give us a way in the abstract to explain these weird supernatural things if and when they do occur and that kind of helps us cope yes i totally meant it like that <laughs> i i definitely agree with you though like the concept of it being used to cope and help people understand what's going on i think that that's the best way that you can use them um great example oh Great example, Harry Potter. Damn it! I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I I actually have like I was taking little notes on sticky notes before this, and I have the predestination thing written down by prophecy, and like a, a little ways down the notes, I have Harry Potter in uh, parentheses with a question mark next to it, and a, 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 a like slash through it. <laughs> but yeah. Yes, uh, Dreaded Harry Potter is another, once again, great example of something we're talking about. And it really does kind of cover the idea of prophecy very widely, like to the point where by the end of it, you're not even sure if Harry was the chosen one or if it was Neville Longbottom and how it could have been both either of them or both of them the entire time. And it just it plays with it the whole time to kind of explain why certain things can happen. And you can see that as either pretty cheap narratively or ingenious, depending on where you stand on this whole thing. Which means, by and large, that it was probably effective, because people are going to have those perspectives no matter how clever you are. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing with something that's interpretive, is that everyone's going to form their own opinion on it, and even if you inform them through character or through event, they're still going to believe what they want. Um, I don't know how familiar either of you are with the A Song of Ice and Fire community, but George R. Martin has thrown so many prophecies and forecasts into his series. And even the ones that have like essentially come to be, people still argue over them and what they mean and, and what their perspective is on this. And I think that that is a great example of using destiny and prophecy to its greatest extent because no one's sure what it is, even if things have cementedly happened to make them so. Yeah, ultimately, I think, like, forecasts are kind of this way in general. If someone predicts something is going to happen, you kind of wonder about the attributes of it. Like, you could read a farmer's al almanac, and it's like, oh, we predict this storm will roll in on this day, and you wonder how bad it's going to be and stuff like that. Now we have, obviously, imaging technology that shows us exactly what's going on, but back in those days, you could make it kind of a reasonable prediction but you still wait with bated breath to see how it's going to turn out as a result. And some of the same psychological you know, energy goes into prophecies in general. Like a prophecy guarantees something is going to happen. I think that's like the main thing. A prophecy promises some future event. And we don't know specifically everything about it. Even if it's clear as day, even if it's like really close to an instruction manual, there can still be tricky genie loophole approaches to the the particular fulfillments of its clauses and things like that so really i mean th this is one of the reasons i kind of like spoilers for tv shows and books and stuff 
if someone tells me there's a twist going to happen later on in the story, well, great. Like that, that compels me to want to watch it because I want to see how they get there. I want to see all the events leading up to the twist that charge it with energy that make the twist powerful. And hey, if the only thing that makes the, the media compelling to begin with is that there's a twist in it, I don't know. It, it probably wouldn't have held up anyway, you know, if that's the only thing that it relies on. Some M. Night Shyamalan stuff comes to mind. Some, yeah. <laughs> One thing that kind of came to mind um, while you were talking about prophecy is not just the apocalyptic ones, but the ones that kind of are tied into the hero's story. And, you know, this this created many a, a chosen one, Mary Sue character, but it similarly has created some of, at least in my mind, the one that came to mind, one of the, the more famous of all characters, and that's King Arthur, who's destined to be king, and then after his death, he will return and be king once more. Uh, the once and future king. Mm. And you kind of have this whole story around the prophecy of it. And, you know, different people have played with the story a bit and you have different tellings of it, like a matter of Britain and, um, you know, uh, the Le Morte Arthur, which is the death of Arthur. They all have their different ways to tell the story, but I think genuinely in them all, you still have this concept that, Arthur is the king of Britain, and even after his death, he'll come back and be king once more when Britain needs him most. So it's not even a definitive date. It's just this, when is it going to be so bad that Britain needs him? Yeah, and when is humanity going to reach the apex of evil that we require a reckoning you know, of, of divine proportions? And when will the stars be right to release the thing slumbering far in the reaches of space, etc.? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a really interesting space to leave someone hanging in. There's this this prolonged tension that you almost forget about until it becomes reasonable to wonder about again. So so things start to get bad, and you start to say, "Oh, do you remember? Like, wasn't this this was prophesied? This was a thing already, right?" So it, it kind of it's like a on the one hand, it can be a release valve for these situations. You can point to something and say, "Oh, th this isn't totally." unpredicted and irrational um, at all. We, we have a precedent for this. On the other hand, it can add tension to a situation by saying, instead of just the set of circumstances, this is leading into this thing. These are the initial footsteps toward the end time. And we can see that because it's part of this prophecy. I think that's probably the best way to use, my opinion, of course, is the best way to use a prophecy whether it's in the narrative or let's say in the game is it's present but not obvious it's not going to necessarily dictate how things go but it's something that can be referred to um, become the reason some would say for why things are without necessarily being directly the reason yeah i think that's a really really good way to use that i mean honestly that's the way i feel about many many tropes like unless you're writing satire to kind of slather the trope on top of things and, and make it like govern the whole story often often feels maybe just a little bit garish and prophecies in my mind are generally not an exception here so like harry potter we were, we were kind of like joking about it earlier but i think one of the reasons a lot of people feel that way about harry potter is that it's kind of so blatant like there's a lot of stuff about harry as a character where he he wouldn't be in many situations at all 
unless there were a prophecy written about him. Otherwise, Harry's kind of a he's kind of an unremarkable character, right? Like one of the only interesting things about him is that he has a prophecy, you know? But he's brave, Benji. He's brave. <laughs> oh, how could I forget? He's brave and heir to a big bully's throne. Yep. I guess you do see that afterwards, though, that that is a really big trope in YA after Harry Potter is just having your rather bland but kind of courageous main character, the everyman that you hope you could be. And I, I mean, I, I see some value in it, of course, because like you have the reluctant protagonist, right? So like if a prophecy pulls them in, they're like, well, I'm just a normal person. I just happened. I can't help that someone wrote this thing about me or that that these circumstances aligned and sucked me into the situation. And like, I think initially that's one of the really compelling things about Harry Potter. I think initially it's like, yes, this is not someone who would have pursued a call to adventure they're kind of downtrodden and stuff and they get sucked in and we're all we're all kind of like that you know how many calls to adventure do we pursue on the daily it's not every day a, a wizard shows up and tries to whisk you away to a school and like if they did would you would you take it so harry kind of being forced into that situation by a set of circumstances is okay it, it kind of lines up i think the weird thing is later on in the story when he's all grown up and maybe ready to take more initiative, it still feels often like he's just being dragged along by all these other characters who are invested in his fate and what he's supposed to do to fulfill his prophecy. And that's the point where it's like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not seeing anything new. I'm not being pulled into a journey. I think now's the time for activity. Now's the time to do things. And that's, for Harry Potter in particular, that's kind of a weird uh, character thing. But for prophecy in general, Maybe maybe this is something we can extrapolate outward and think like, okay, a prophecy can pull you in. It's kind of a predetermined path. But then along the way, it's your agency. It's the things you start to do that make it interesting and not just a set of instructions that you're following, right? Because like anyone can walk a path, but it's the ways in which people traverse that that give them character. I agree with that. And I think it's in, and it's important specifically for a story. That's what makes stories compelling is that there are the characters there. Um, there might be a prophecy hanging over or under their heads, wherever it may be. But ultimately, it feels as though this is because of their choices. And that in general, I think, applies to not just people seeking adventure, but people in a society. And what makes kind of the discussion of predetermination kind of a this really deep philosophical thing is that at what point is it people choosing to do their own thing, making their own choices versus what possibly is a greater design by forces that, that go above their heads by a prophecy or if it was all planned or if there really is agency and truth when you're dealing with prophecies in general, but also like in general existence. And I think that also goes back to the idea of uh, societal reflection, where the things like gods, religions, fate, however it may be, how people deal and cope with that kind of coalesces into what we like to see in stories and what gets reflected in the narratives that we've discussed so far. This is such a heady topic, and like there's so much meat, but um, to launch back into something 
connected to what you were saying just now. I think that that kind of liminal space where it's like, is this my agency or is this just the path someone set out for me? Do I have agency at all? You see someone go down a path and, and make their own choices while they're going down it. The path was already laid, but they're characterized by how they went down it. But then you zoom out and you see someone was kind of puppeteering it by incentivizing them to do weird things as they went down the path. And yeah, that, that question of like, what, what does agency even look like if there are forces that can control the decisions we make, right? If serendipity is operating at the behest of some kind of celestial being or game maker or something like that, um, what, is it, what does action mean? What does election mean at all? And um, I think part of the interesting conversation about that is that like, to the person, if they never know about the prophecy, it still matters to them. The illusion of choice in the situation still matters to them and how they go down the path. Even if they know it's a path already laid, if they think they're making decisions, then it's, it's okay. It's still something they can, you know, feel like they have some level of control over. And it's been a long time since I've looked at it, but I recall this being one of the themes in um, Oedipus, in, in his story, where like, he makes these decisions that destroy him, and we're kind of to believe it's like a catch-22, the whole situation, where like, he goes out to prevent his prophecy, but in doing that, he's fulfilling it, right? Because he was, he was prophesied to do that. But to Oedipus at the time, that's, that's what seemed rational. And it's still, to him, feels like his decision. And then, of course, he gets robbed of that, uh, or disabused of that notion later. So, I mean, all I can really do is, all I can think to do is articulate examples of it, because I don't know, I don't know how to play in this space at all. It's so heady. Like, this is so far beyond my, um, my expertise, my ability to just do anything meaningful with, because it's so loaded already. We, we dove into some deep philosophical stuff, unintentionally, I might add. This was just a matter of where the conversation went. But yeah, I was just thinking, well, is, is a self-fulfilling prophecy really a thing in that sense? If it was meant to happen anyways, it would have fulfilled regardless of who did it. So, yeah. Sorry, semantics there, but that, that was just me. Does free will exist if only one person can fulfill the prophecy and they have to fulfill the prophecy and the prophecy is going to be fulfilled no matter what does free will exist for that person? Well, certainly not. But in that case, if such things can be true, does free will exist for anyone in that situation? Because that means that you would be there at that exact time to help them along in that exact way. So they fulfill the prophecy as they did. All right, let's, because there's no, this is some let's, weird let's scope. <laughs> No, let's let's jump to oh, an even no. higher level. Let's jump to the like a truly metaphysical, awful level of perceptivity in general, where like if you have the perception of something, does that make it reality? And the reason I'm talking about this is is because of um what Tyler was saying and what I was saying before that about like perceiving your will as your own. If you're never disabused of that notion, to you, that's reality. Whether or not the prophecy says otherwise, whether or not there's someone pulling the strings, if your whole life you, th you think you're free, isn't that tantamount to freedom in your experience? Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Yeah. 
and then like do we how much do we want to know prophecies like i guess it depends on what it does for us you know um maybe if it's a guidebook that that gives us the opportunity to avert a crisis of some kind or reinterpret a crisis okay but can't a prophecy like in the case of oedipus just make things so much worse by ruining our blissful ignorance Yes, it can actually. Yeah. Man, that, yeah. I, I read the entirety of uh, Oedipus Rex, and uh, it was it was heavy. But yeah, so I guess in, just to comment on that, then it it makes me think that prophecy is just best used as a tool. Because once we you once you start diving into the specifics of it, when you're writing or thinking about your characters, it's a really deep rabbit hole. But if you just use prophecy, like in Harry Potter gets used to forward the plot a lot, like a lot. But um, in some cases it can be kind of a, it can be the catalyst for action. It's when you try to really go deep into explaining how and why and the who's and what's and the fine details of the prophecy that makes it be a prophecy. That's when you get into this really, really heady stuff that I, I, I can't answer it because there's, it, it, we're getting into deep philosophy at this point. There, yeah, there have been so many occasions where you guys are saying something and like the thoughts are formulating, but then like by the time you're done, I'm like, I, I still don't have like a grasp on this. Like there's all these ethereal threads. How do I even articulate this? But I hope you guys don't, don't mind if I jump to something else because there's something I've been thinking about since Tyler uh, shared the topic for this podcast with me. So. Way earlier, we were talking about the long, like the far future after an apocalyptic event. I I like to think in terms of relativity, like what the world looks like, you know, before and after the apocalypse. And I was thinking, and, and the, the five areas I could think of connected to apocalypse are, obviously you have long before the apocalypse may be prophesied or whatever, but there's no danger of it happening. It's just a general knowledge or no one's aware of it at all. So the impact is minimal. You have a completely functional unapocalyptic society. Then you have like a pre-apocalyptic society where they're right on the brink. And I think that's kind of the tension we've been feeling in the modern world a lot lately. There's this fear, like we, we just often feel like we're right on the brink of some terrible thing happening. Um, and then of course there's apocalyptic where like in the story or the setting, the apocalypse is actually happening. And then there's post-apocalyptic, which we're all very familiar with, with Fallout. And then there's the long after we were talking about. So the three most interesting to me right now, because we already talked about the last two, are way before, right before, and during the apocalypse. And in world building, I wonder how often somebody sets out to build a world that is presently ending. I think it happens a lot more than we might realize, uh, just because it's a very common and I think a very easy to implement uh, narrative when there is a world ending nature or something that's terrible is going to happen and it has to be solved or players have to solve it, however the media form may be, that it's going to end the world unless something happens to stop it. And to get to that point, I do think it's it's both tricky and easy to create a world that's on that brink or in the middle of it. Just because it's 
for me personally, I think it's common. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Because as I was talking about that, kind of what I was envisioning was like a world that has that has started to go through its ice age, like that that is in the middle of its ice age. And you know, I, I think it's easy from a macro perspective to think of that as in the apocalypse, but during that situation, it's just the setting. Like a previous way of life is is ending, but that that would just be the setting that you're writing in. Kind of like Stormlight Archive. Like it's just a condition of existence that this huge, massive continental storm is going to sweep through. So life has adapted and things like that. But I don't know if I would ever have categorized that as a an apocalyptic setting, but it kind of is, right? If if life is living during the apocalypse, there's got to be some way for it to to persist or you have a terminal timeline. You're you're just you're not really building a setting so much as you are just building an event, right? Yep. It's uh you're literally just popping the apocalypse into a otherwise fine setting. And I think well, I'm not going to say everyone does it. I feel as though because of the intricacies that can go into world building, that's probably the most pragmatic way to go about it, is that you have this built setting, and you really just have to think of what's going to happen amidst it, and how will people generally react. Because once you get into kind of the the various branches of world building that occurs, like, oh, the economy's going to collapse, the politics are going to collapse, how are people individually going to do it? That is a lot to really think of, and depending on the purposes of your work, it's not something that can be really encompassed in a single form narrative or maybe even entire campaign of a game just because it's so much to consider. Yeah. And you know, maybe instead of like a setting, maybe this is more of a, a timeline thing because when you're building a world, really what you're building by and large is a system, right? And a system under stress is still a system. So saying like you're building an apocalyptic world, I don't know if that's really reflective on the world itself, maybe just the state of that world in that situation. And then of course it, it can change the setting and things like that. But um, it, it would be like saying uh, I am building a, a modernist art world, right? But like by and large, the the physics of our world and like the physiology of humans and things like that is not going to be defined by the modernist art movement that may be going on in your world, you know, no, no matter how reformative or interesting that is. So yeah, maybe it is best to just continue to conceptualize these as events rather than actual settings, which is a weird thing when you get into post-apocalyptic settings, because those, those do tend to be completely different from their original settings. And then it's kind of the juxtaposition of how things are against how they used to be that makes the setting compelling. So I think to build on that, I know exactly what to reference. And there's two things. One you mentioned previously, both technically weren't mentioned previously, but the first one is Fallout. The apocalypse technically happens in 15 minutes. Everything's over. And there's no setting to be had because it it's there and then it's gone. And there's only the before and after. And then the other one that comes to mind is World of Warcraft, because you have Vanilla and Burning Crusade and Wrath of the Lich King, first the base game, the first two expansions, which are the world as it was, 
And then all of a sudden in a cutscene, the cataclysm and the world's shaken up, parts are flooded, parts are sunk, part, things are destroyed. And it happens in minutes, in moments. The apocalypse is a perceived event, not a, not a setting to view. What happens is when you play Cataclysm, when you log in, the world is totally changed. And you play through new stories about how the world is now affected by the apocalypse. It goes from long before, pre-apocalypse, event, post-apocalypse, the long after. I think the apocalypse is never a static moment. It is the event. Stormlight is an apocalyptic world, but the storm has already come and the world's adapted. It's long after the apocalypse. It's just that the thing that caused the apocalypse is there. People just got used to it. It's kind of the same thing with uh, winter in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Where like there's this apocalyptic winter that comes around and lasts years every every generation. And um, it can totally change things every time it passes around. Kings freeze in their castles, etc. And uh, yeah, it's not so much that like we have Winter World, A Song of Ice and Fire, and Summer World, A Song of Ice and Fire. We have an event that people respond to. And uh, that, that's, that's something I'm newly thinking about here, mostly because of when I think about Apocalypse, I go straight to like these post-apocalyptic settings that so, so embody what it means to have an Apocalypse effect, a fictional world setting um, or a real world setting. I mean, in the case of Fallout, turning it into a fictional world setting. But like, it's, it's a new thought for me, honestly. It seems obvious that an apocalypse should be an event, but I've just for so long seen it conceptualized as, as a status, as this thing has happened. And now because of apocalypse, new setting. And I, I think maybe thinking of that way means that maybe there are different settings on either side of an apocalypse. And we think of an apocalypse as like a transformative event. So you have your pre-apocalypse and your post-apocalyptics or post-apocalypse. And then instead of apocalypse between them, you just have like a line that they cross and something has changed between them. I guess it depends on what the apocalypse is. Because as you were, as both of you were speaking, I was just thinking, this is a great point in nuance for apocalyptic events. We discussed this earlier with natural disasters where there's like the things that hit right now, like tornadoes versus things that kind of take a while, like, uh, what is it? like long winters or droughts or what have you. Those are technically one you consider more natural event, but the other can be just as damning over the long term. So in this case, I think it's just that too, where you can have those sudden apocalyptic events and then there are those that can be prolonged. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of think that, uh, and this is more of a man-made thing, but an issue like with the Resident Evil series, where it's something that kind of takes place over a long time, like, they get zombies, but it doesn't just end there. It's not like the entire society collapses because of zombies. But then you get these multiple strings and stories that come up from, like, that one defining event that's still technically part of this awful thing. And I'm trying to think of a good, actual, like, natural disaster situation or uh, prophesized end situation aside from that by blanking out the moment. I think I see what you're saying, though. Like, that the state of change that an apocalypse brings can be very gradual and during that state of change you can have different settings resultant of the change it's not just like zombie infestation and then the aftermath of the zombie infestation 
it persists to happen. Although I think there's an interesting, there's an interesting like branching path of ways to think about this, where like was the apocalyptic event the zombies proliferating and spreading throughout the world and, and stuff, or was it the inciting incident, the release of the zombies? Um, because when we think of apocalypse, just like etymologically, it's that revelation, it's that dawning moment. And then after that, things can never go back to the way they were. So I wonder if thinking that way, if like apocalypse can be a state that you exist in, or or if there is just like one, like a switch that flicks, and then things are different from there on, no matter how dramatic, you know, like whatever caused the release of the T virus into the population, someone broke a test tube or something, and that was the apocalypse or, or the revelation that that was going to get out to people. I think that starts to get into the semantics of the event versus a setting. Because mm -hmm. when you say setting, I think of like more, the, the bigger, kind of the bigger picture, the bigger detail versus if it is something that happens. Similar to what Tyler mentioned with the cataclysm in World of Warcraft. It happened, but then now you have this, and then after that, because it happened, it happened so quickly. You tend go into a post-apocalyptic setting because it's done. Meanwhile, you might have something that's more a uh, pro, what's it called? prolonged situation where whether it's zombies or massive uh, extreme changes in the natural environment that people have to live through, but it hasn't altered society enough to, to amount to anything beyond or to really alter their understanding of the reality so much, at least not yet. So I think we're just getting into what, what counts as the event and when does that event become a setting if it ever becomes a setting. I think you're probably right, because the way I tend to think of setting, and this comes from uh, the book Story by Robert McKee, he has this idea that setting is place plus conflict over a duration of time. So like, if you have um, medieval Italy, right, that's a place. But if you have medieval Italy um, under quarantine during a plague, that becomes a setting because suddenly a story is happening there. Something is staged there. Um, so a setting is a place within which something happens. And you're probably right that like many settings are created resultant of this apocalyptic event. Like if you think of the T-virus, there are immediately three easy stories you can tell. At ground zero, right as the apocalypse is about to happen, that's a story concerning the apocalypse. Um, immediately after it's happened, before it's spread out, that's also a story within the apocalypse. And then as it, as it dawns, as it starts to get out. And um, all of those, as soon as you apply the conflict, become settings, and they all require their own level of minute world building and such. It's, it's just an, it's, it's an interesting space to think about because I think it, it is very easy to think about change when you're doing like storytelling as juxtaposing two statuses. Aren't technically all three of those the first three Resident Evil movies? They they might actually be. I've only seen huh. the first and then previews of the other two. Yeah, there's like six six movies now. Okay. Um, <laughs> there are six movies now. Oh, I think I think there's oh, seven. Oh man. Um, oh gosh. When uh, when it catches up to Land Before Time, we should watch them side <laughs> by side. But um, but no, you, you're you're right. Um, it's the event and how the event transpires that creates different levels to the setting. 
because you can have the meteor impact and you have the world before it right after it hits. And then the stages of recuperation are all different levels of settings because even if you look at Fallout, the, the first four Fallout games, first five if you include New Vegas, you have different levels of how society's reacted. It's barely come out of the gutter. It's starting to resettle. It's become resettled and so on. And it shows the world as it is developing and kind of coming back from the nuclear apocalypse. Yeah, and this this is useful to me in that when you start thinking about minute world building, because it's very easy to zoom out and think about worlds as holistic systems where like you do the geography and stuff like that. But even if you've got an established system, even if it's the real world, if you have a setting, you have world building to do. You have to figure out what you're showing, what's relevant to the situation and such. And in a situation like this, where there's a, a large amount of conflict condensed into perhaps a small amount of space, if it's a character-driven story, even if it's an event that will change everything, um, you have that moment where like, you have to zero in on a place for a thing to happen. And um, yeah, just thinking in nuance about the the relation to event an event creating multiple different settings it, that's a really interesting it's a really interesting thing I, I don't often hear that discussion when you get into world building uh, often like i said before world building just seems like a a macroscopic thing all right well as much as i love this discussion we have come to the end of our time uh, do you guys have any last thoughts or recommendations that you'd like to give our listeners on the subject of apocalypse and prophecy i actually have a question for um the the paizo editor <laughs> um hello hey do you know any really good um pathfinder modules or anything that are like the world is ending and you need to stop it that aren't just like um bad person has a plan go after them like like something like a natural disaster or something like that like a natural disaster oh gosh no i i can't say i do for pathfinder second darkness Second, it might be. I think the the Rune Lords uh, modules might be really good for that, but that's because they're essentially resurrecting, or essentially the return of these massively evil evil dudes. Uh, no, no. Um. Oh. Oh. Um. The the Aslant one. That one has natural disasters. Oh, the Aslanti yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, technically, the whole situation that leads into Starfinder is technically that too. But I, I don't think it's been given an adventure necessarily are there aps for starfinder yeah starfinder has its own aps but uh the, the reason starfinder comes along is because something happens that essentially <laughs> that destroys the planet yeah. so i don't think they've gotten to that point yet though no it'll be the origin of that setting no one knows that's cool, though. You, you guys have given me a thirst for something like this, and uh, it's been a long time since I've had the opportunity to roleplay, so like, maybe for the next session, I, now that we've talked about this for a little while, I'm really, really interested in finding those minute settings like during the apocalyptic change. I want to find that, because I'm, I'm so used to um, just before it happening and trying to prevent it. That's fair. I think it's just it can be difficult for people to identify kind of the state of flux when you're just living it. Yeah, it's for sure. It's always easier in hindsight. 
Absolutely. That that's often where that's like where we're used to telling stories. We almost always naturally tell a story reflectively. Like when was the last time you told a story about something that was going to happen or like something that's happening right now? It's it's usually reflective, right? Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was awesome. I like I have not had to stop to think so many times during a conversation in a very long time. Well, I'm glad to have you on. Yeah. It was uh it was quite a deep dive into some some deep ethics questions, so I liked it a lot. Ah, but I'm not gonna I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll say something. Uh oh man, <laughs> this was tricky. Apocalypses and prophecies. Just I guess to give a kind of umbrella, a bit of a net for it. They're they're they can be great world building tools that should probably be mainly used as tools to kind of branch out from to create reasons for why a people reacts the way they react or why a society um, has done things in their history as reflective of the possibility of an end. But using them directly in a narrative can be a very tricky situation when it comes to agency. The agency of the characters, the agency of the people in a world, the agency of players, if you have a campaign where you've built a world for it. Uh, it's something to consider when prophecy is involved specifically, of how much is that happenstance, how much of it is a plan, and how much of it is put forth by those living the prophecy. It's a bit tricky, but uh, kind of getting an idea of how that all works can can really help make your story just a bit deeper, perhaps a bit deeper than you intended, but still fun. I think, yeah, I think that's a, a really good piece of input. I think, um, I think one of the possible pitfalls of prophecy in Apocalypse is is falling too far into the 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 rabbit hole of philosophy, like like people do with time travel, for instance. So if there's one thing leaving this, um, I would recommend with, with apocalypses and prophecy and stuff, yeah, just try to, try to keep it minute. Think about the individual choices and conflicts that are going to crop up as a result of this thing. If you can zoom into the micro scale as opposed to the macro scale, you can probably find a trove of conflict and good settings to write and good stories to tell. I think the best way I like to look at this is, um, you know, I was just young when Morrowind, uh, Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind came out, and it starts with a quote. And the quote is that each event is preceded by prophecy, but without the hero, there is no event. And this can just bring to the fact that you have to be the hero to have it happen. It can't just spontaneously generate, and it's not going to predeterminedly happen. You have to be the hero. Your characters have to be the hero that you that they need to be for that the world needs them to be. They are not just going to be born that way. And I think I like to look at this through apocalypse through the same lens that it and prophecy aren't these determined things. They are events that need someone to make them happen. And you know, even if it's a natural disaster apocalypse, there usually has to be a reason or something that ties it into happening to make it reckon with the world to consolidate how this is going to affect it otherwise it's just going to feel like some cheap event that happened far off in the past and if i can leave you with any bit of advice is 
I personally do not roll my eyes harder as a reader or as a gamer or an audience member when there's some huge world-changing apocalypse 5,000 years ago. That'd be like the world worrying and being affected by like, I don't know, something that happened at the end of Egypt. It's so far away that it doesn't matter to me. So just keep that perspective of time when you're putting things in the past. Keep them relevant, I would say. I'm going to leave you with a quote by P. Harding. Everything is made to perish. The wonder of anything at all is that it has not already done so. No, he thought, the wonder of anything is that it was made in the first place. What persists beyond this cataclysm of making and unmaking is all that matters. Thank you, and have a good night. You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media, or feel free to come chat with us on the Worldbuilding Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep worldbuilding. Building.